This is an ABC podcast. Do you remember first hearing about climate change, when you first heard about climate change as an issue and and realised that this wasn't, um, you know, just another interesting scientific fact, but a a serious problem? Gosh. um, It's something that I've been asking all of our guests. Look, I had... I'm not sure. Probably, you know, around around the turn of the century. First heard about it would have been in the very early 2000s. Probably wasn't seen as something that was urgently necessary until probably 2005, sometime around that. I, I think I had a vague idea that it was there from quite a young age. It was the coal miners' union that um, alerted me to the importance of it was in about 1982 or 83 in my Year 9 Geography class with Mr Welsh. For most people, climate change is something that's been on the mind for between one and four decades. And for most of that time, the solution to this enormous problem has been unclear, often unclear to the point of despair. But in 1973, one man in Adelaide was quite confident he fully understood the problem and the solution. But the difficulty of using coal over those long terms, is the fact that it produces carbon dioxide. This is Professor John Bokras. Born in South Africa, educated in England and on staff at the time at Flinders University in Adelaide. That does unfortunate things to our atmosphere. To put it very briefly, it it makes the climate change. John Bokras said confidently that it wasn't a matter of if this was happening when we would really start to notice it. Something by the year 2000, plus or minus three or four, perhaps something by the years 2010, 2020. He said the solution to this problem was clear. I think virtually all scientists, at least those with some knowledge of this area at all, some general knowledge, agree that solar energy is going to be the final energy source for man. But whether that solar energy has to be built up by the end of the century on a large scale, or whether it has to be built up 50 years later. That's the argument. That is the argument. At the time, solar panels were spectacularly expensive, but Bokras thought that homes powered by solar energy were on the way soon. I think a solar home could be built right now. Heating, uh, cooling, refrigeration... Um, electricity will be collected and run from the sun. In the case of houses, the individual houses, we'd store the electricity probably in batteries. Bokras said that all of Australia's energy needs could be provided by solar panels. Let me explain how we get from solar energy to electricity. One sets up a solar energy farm. This would be a stretch of land and to supply Australia with its energy it would have to have a side of about 30 miles if it were a square. There would be rows of silicon cells from which, when the light had fallen, electricity would be produced. A square 30 miles aside. Keep in mind this man was speaking 49 years ago, talking about addressing a problem almost no one knew about, with an energy source that barely existed on an almost unimaginable scale. A square of solar panels 30 miles aside. Here's the thing. 
If you took all the solar panels expected to be operating in Australia in 2050 and put them in one square solar farm, do you want to guess how long each side would be? About 30 miles. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Australia If You're Listening a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. Our federal politicians have spent years trying to defend the coal-fired power industry. We'll need to build more baseload power stations in the Latrobe Valley. To say that it's got to be phased out by 2050 is drawing a very long bow. We want to make sure that we keep coal baseload fire power stations going. But experts say that battle is over. We are now on a path which will see coal-fired power stations shut down rapidly over the coming decades. The company says the Araring plant in New South Wales is too expensive to operate in the face of cheaper renewable energy. The moment this plant is turned off, greenhouse gas emissions in New South Wales will drop by 10%. In this episode, the story of two scientists nearly 50 years apart with visions for an emissions-free society. A future for Australia that is prosperous and carbon neutral. We failed to take the warning from the first and squandered a golden opportunity. The question is, will we listen this time before it's too late? What we want, clearly, is a kind of snowy river project in solar energy research. We've got to get cracking. In 1977, Professor John Bockris was annoyed. He was trying to tell the government to back solar research, and they weren't listening. We've got to have another energy source very quickly. No one's seriously interested in atomic anymore. It's on the back burner. And what we've got to do is to get going on on solar. Photovoltaic solar cells use the heat of the sun to wiggle electrons and make electricity. They'd been invented 20 years earlier, but were only used on satellites. The cost of solar panels was so high at first that the 10 kilowatt solar panel system I have on my roof would have cost the equivalent of $260 million to make. The price was coming down, but Bokris wanted it to come down faster. He was calling on the Australian government to back it. Yes, well, uh, one has to make judgments about these things. This is the Transport Minister at the time, Peter Nixon. It's just not clearly possible at this time to find... Uh, the the sorts of money that Professor Bokris would like for solar energy uh, at this time. Bokris said the government was only interested in listening to fossil fuel lobbyists. The minister disputed this. Professor Bokris is pushing his own barrow. We we are developing uh, power at the moment from the most convenient source. The most convenient source being coal, gas and oil. Uh, They say, uh, they indicate that they'll wait for the Americans to do it for them. Well, this seems to me to be a pretty supine attitude. I might add that I doubt the feasibility of Australia taking the lead over countries such as the United States in the development of solar energy. So that was 1977. An expert was demanding the government tip money into solar research and the government said they were happy to stick with what we had and let America figure out solar. Australia has got a really bad track record of being the smartest guys in the room, but then giving away the technology for others to make money out of it. This is Scott Hamilton, an energy expert from the University of Melbourne. The the science and the technology 
for creating the solar panels was actually came out of the University of New South Wales. The funny thing about that is that the money for this New South Wales research came from America. Well, at the University of New South Wales, they've just received a grant from NASA to continue their research. This grant was given in 1982 to a team led by an engineer named Professor Martin Green. Professor Martin Green at the University of New South Wales has achieved what no other scientist has achieved so far. In the mid-80s, Professor Green's Australian team developed solar panels which were 70% more efficient and three times cheaper to produce than any other panels in the world. And we've succeeded in licensing a number of companies to produce these cells commercially. And by the early 90s, the prediction of rooftop solar started to come true. It's an Australian first, a house that consumes and produces electricity. By 1994, the price had dropped by 95% in two decades. And Australia's first grid-connected solar system was installed in a house in Queensland's Sunshine Coast. Its excess energy can feed back into the main electricity grid. At this point, the price of my solar panel system would have been $60,000. Much better, but still not affordable. The price would need to come down more. Professor Martin Green and his research team at UNSW kept working on rooftop solar but struggled to get much Australian government support. You know, compared to China, compared to US, there's virtually nothing here, you know, to, to encourage people, to inspire young people. This is Dr Shu Jong Rong. He was one of Martin Green's students and was frustrated by the lack of Australian investment in solar research. He and Green worked together at a private company set up to try and commercialise their research but he thought progress was too slow. Thankfully for him, someone was interested in speeding things up. In the year 2000, Shu Zhongrong was living in Sydney when he was approached by four Chinese government officials. They offered to help him set up a solar company with a $6 million investment. Six months later, he created a company called SunTech. Starting SunTech in China was the right decision because, as you just mentioned, the great support from government, you know, especially financially, you know, for a startup company. And uh, I guess in, in Australia, it probably would be fairly tough you know, for a startup company. With the cooperation and assistance of Green and others at UNSW, Shu Zhongrong created a manufacturing facility in China which could make panels more cheaply than anywhere else in the world. They commercialised it and built massive factories and um, started selling them to the world. This went pretty well for Shu Zhongrong. SunTech is the world's biggest producer of solar panels. And Dr. Sher, a billionaire. That bell ringing sound, by the way, was Sher opening the New York Stock Exchange. SunTech was the first Chinese company listed there. By then, he'd become known as the Sun King. He used a large amount of the money made making solar panels to fund the research of colleagues in Australia. You know, I believe there are so many good technologies here in this country. And, uh, you know, many, many just end up nowhere. Australian government should really encourage these people uh, to collaborate with some you know, established company to, or help them to start up their own company. Sure wasn't alone. California, Spain and Germany also benefited from Australian brains heading overseas to find more supportive environments for their work. 
Solar panels are now on the rooftop of around 3 million Australian homes, or 20% of all domestic rooftops, thanks in large part to subsidies from state governments. The predictions of John Bockris came true. Once the price became low enough, people bought in. It's now the cheapest form of energy ever. I think there was like some, you know, announcement that came out at the end of maybe 2018 or 2019 that said Australia installed a gigawatt of solar, of rooftop solar last year. This is Alison Reeve, now at the Grattan Institute, formerly a government energy advisor. And I texted my friend and said, do you remember back when we reached like a megawatt in New South Wales and we went to the pub to celebrate? And he texted me back and said, yeah, you know, if we were doing that now, we'd be drunk by lunchtime every day. Together, the rooftops of Australia provide over 8% of the nation's annual electrical energy. Add 4% from commercial solar farms, 11% from wind farms and 7% from hydroelectric dams. And renewables are providing one third of Australia's needs. 20 years ago, there was only hydro. The chance to build the solar industry here at home may have slipped through our fingers, but here's the thing. This switch to solar electricity, it's really just the beginning. Our plan for net zero by 2050 is the plan that I believe Australians want. Because it gets it right. This announcement from the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, came late 2021, ahead of the UN Climate Change Summit in Glasgow. Australians will set our own path to net zero by 2050, and we'll set it here, by Australians, for Australians. The government was matching a commitment the Labor Party had taken to two elections. It didn't come easily, though. I believe that we should have a zero crime rate by 2050. So what? While the Liberal Party had been supportive of a net zero commitment for some time, their coalition partners, the Nationals, were not. Until I can be assured and the National Party can be assured that a zero emission target won't negatively impact our industries and our communities, uh, we won't be supporting it. The Nationals' hesitancy came despite the generally conservative National Farmers Federation and Business Council of Australia backing it. Well, the Prime Minister might believe in miracles, but... I don't think we should be gambling people's jobs on a wing and a prayer. The idea of net zero emissions really became a big deal at the 2015 UN Climate Change Conference in Paris. The thing that was important in the Paris Agreement was this idea that you wanted to be at net zero emissions. And that, I think, changes people's thinking because you're not thinking about reducing emissions anymore. You're thinking about completely eliminating them. It's important to remember that net zero doesn't mean zero. It simply means that for every tonne of carbon you put into the atmosphere, you need to take another one out by planting trees or doing something else which captures emissions. That was seven years ago now. And aiming to reach net zero by 2050 has become less of a global ambition and more of a requirement. Australia's delay in announcing this goal led to criticism from other countries. You are concerned about your saving your economies in Australia. I'm concerned about saving my people in Tuvalu. CNN said that Australia was now the weakest link among G20 nations. The Financial Times said that Australia remained wedded to fossil fuels. I think the struggle that the government had in getting to a net zero by 2050 target agreed 
was quite astonishing. This is Kerry Schott, former chair of the government's Energy Security Board. Her job was to advise the government on how to modernise the electricity grid. She's extremely exasperated by how long it's taking the federal government to move forward. It's not something that many of us would look at and think was even a remarkable target. And in fact, it was almost like um, accepting a target that everybody else had accepted a long time ago. The fact of the matter is that in electricity, the action's been driven by the states and the federal government's almost made itself irrelevant in that, you know, the solar and wind are coming whether they like it or not. So get out of the way, it's coming. So it's coming. The energy grid John Bockris envisaged and urged the government to investigate in the 1970s is on its way in the 2020s and 30s. So the challenge is to achieve a zero emissions electricity system where we're not using fossil fuels to meet our existing electricity needs. This is Dr Alan Finkel, formerly Australia's chief scientist. When you took the job of chief scientist, did you know that the the primary thing that you would be dealing with would be climate change and and energy transition? Uh, Not at all, Matt. Your your question actually presupposes that I had any idea what the job (laughs) would entail. As chief scientist, and since as a special advisor to the government, he's been charting a course to a net zero emissions national electricity market. We have an existing electricity system that we can completely eliminate the use or the need for uh, oil, coal, oil for backup and, and gas generators and coal generators by bringing in lots and lots of solar and wind. As we explained earlier in the series, to do that, we need to invest in a bunch of batteries and pumped hydro plants to store the electricity while the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing. We might get days or even a week or two of very little wind and no no sunshine. And we need huge investment in big electricity transmission lines all over the continent. So that we can get the solar and wind electricity from where it's being generated to where it's needed. One of the many advantages of having a country covering 5% of the world's landmass is that it's always sunny or windy somewhere. And eventually we'll get to the point where we've zeroed out the emissions in our existing electricity system. But that's not enough. That's what I call step one. Step one. See, replacing our coal-fired power stations with renewables only gets us a third of the way to a zero emissions Australia. We have to look at our transport sector and say that's the second biggest sector of emissions And the solution there is electricity again. Basically, all our cars, trucks and freight trains need to stop burning fuel and use electricity instead. Even though Australia is trailing way behind other developed countries on this, we'll get there eventually. But that will mean all that energy currently provided by petrol and diesel will need to come from the electricity grid. So step two is to build almost as much electricity supply again to provide the energy needs of the transport sector. So take what we currently use and double it. Now we've incorporated electric vehicles. Okay, with me? The third step is what's called stationary energy. That's all the energy we get from fossil fuels to heat our homes and cook our food, operate massive factories and industry. To do this properly, that needs to be electric too. And that requires us to do about as much electricity again as what we currently have. That's a lot 
of electricity. When we finish that, we will have three times as much electricity generation in, in Australia as what we have today, and it will all be zero emissions electricity. I'm quite confident that we can get there. And when we do get there, that's what I call the electric planet. The electric planet. This is Alan Finkel's dream. It's the vision he has, nearly 50 years after John Bockris, for how we can use renewables to cut our emissions to zero. Thankfully, this time Australia is taking it seriously. The Australian energy market operator has come up with a plan for thousands of wind turbines and millions of solar panels to be spread across the country. These would not only power our homes, cars and factories, but it would feed energy into giant batteries and pumped hydro plants to store it for when it's needed. All of these would work together like lungs, breathing in gigawatts of sun and wind energy when it's available and breathing out battery and pumped hydropower when it's not. That's the point where all of our primary energy sources or all of our primary energy supply is coming from electricity and that electricity will be zero emissions electricity. AEMO says this plan is not only possible, but investment is already underway. That future where we generate three times as much electricity as we do now, that'll take care of Australia's energy needs. But Australia doesn't just use fossil fuels in our power stations and cars. We also use it to get rich. For 30 years, the debate over climate change in this country has been narrowing. At a national level, the major parties on the left and the right have been battling it out in a shrinking arena, as options for addressing the problem are cast aside. No subsidies, no taxes, no trading systems. The challenge has been to figure out how we can play our part in saving the planet with as little change as possible. We talk about how many jobs it will create and how much the electricity bill will go up or down. This plan will create jobs, cut power bills, boost renewables and reduce emissions. It's positive, but it's narrow. It is not a revolution, but a careful evolution. We've spent this series working out why that is. But this particular Australian debate doesn't just have a cost for the planet. It has a cost for the future of the country. It risks missing opportunities like we missed with solar. We've got a good idea of how we're going to replace our current electricity supply, but that's not all fossil fuels do for us. We make a lot of money exporting energy in the form of coal and natural gas. How are we going to replace that? It might seem like only recently people have started talking about this. And yet, well... One last point which I like to deal with before I stop, is the export possibilities of solar energy. Could Australia, in some form, export solar energy, possibly to Japan and even to the United States? All the way back in 1973, Professor John Bockris said that recent developments in producing hydrogen gas by pumping an electric charge into water opened this up as a possibility. Once we have got the energy into the form of hydrogen by electrolyzing brackish water, it would be possible to pipe it over very long distances. He said that with a total area of solar panels roughly the size of Tasmania, Australia could produce sufficient energy from its sunlight to give the basic power for the whole of the United States as calculated at the year 2000. This is a very considerable, exhilarating 
and visionary prospect, that of Australia as an energy exporting nation in the future. What do you make of that from 1973? I was, uh, I was smiling whilst, whilst it was playing. Terrific is the short answer. Uh, really, I'm, I'm stunned and delighted to have heard that. Uh, it's very impressive. Well, I mean, it, how prophetic is that? It's fantastic. Uh, I hadn't heard that, and uh, it is it is terrific that uh, he was thinking along those lines. That's amazing. I mean, I think the thing it shows you is that there's actually very few new ideas out there. <laughs> um, or that, you know, we have ideas and then we forget them. Now, as all of our experts explained, he wasn't 100% right which is a bit of a relief, to be honest, because otherwise we'd have to assume he was a time traveller or a wizard. His mistake was the bit about exporting it through intercontinental pipes. At the moment, this would seem to be a cheaper scheme than an alternative, which is also a possibility, to liquefy it and tank it, as we do with natural gas, which is, of course, exported all over the world in tankers. It turns out that liquefying it and putting it in tankers is cheaper. It's not easy, though. You have to cool it to minus 253 degrees, or almost the coldest temperature possible in this universe. The cost of liquefying hydrogen is higher than the cost of liquefying uh, natural gas, because you've got to get down to a lower temperature. It's just more difficult to handle. But it's not inconceivably high. We think we can do it. You can do it if you happen to have a tremendous amount of renewable energy available to you, which is why John Bokris was so excited about it in the 70s. Australia's position in the world, in the hemisphere, is just at the right position to obtain constantly the largest amount of solar energy. And there are few other positions in the world, and none in developed countries, where the capability is so great. Alan Finkel is excited about it now too. I went through the whole process of starting off as a sceptic, then becoming a fence sister, then a believer. Some people think of me as an evangelist. I'm waiting for sainthood. But it's going to need a lot of solar panels. If we were to produce the amount of hydrogen that we would need for export to have an equivalent hydrogen export industry to our current LNG industry, we would need to put solar panels down on about 20,000 square kilometres, which is roughly 140 by 140 square kilometres. Now, If you're thinking about your home, that sounds like a huge amount of land. But if you think about Australia, which is 7.7 million square kilometres, it's actually a very, very small amount. It's it's about a third of 1%. It's a bit smaller than our largest farm, which is the Anna Creek Station in South Australia. Hydrogen isn't the only option for turning our renewable energy into something we can sell to other countries. There's work underway to skip hydrogen altogether and deliver Australian energy from the world's largest solar farm to Southeast Asia via an undersea cable. The solar farm doesn't exist yet. It'll be built in the Northern Territory. Everything I've mentioned so far sounds pretty great, right? And this isn't science fiction. It's already happening. At a faster rate than anyone expected. Switching to renewable energy will happen quickly. Our ability to export renewable energy will be developed with or without help from the federal government. They don't really need to worry about it. Other people are taking care of it. The issue, though, is if they don't pay attention, the great stuff on the way will have some not-so-great consequences. 
Firstly, there's the possibility it will leave some people behind. The other impact is on low socioeconomic communities and people in other areas of Australia, which won't be able to afford to put the solar panels on their on their roofs or buy the batteries or buy the electric vehicles and will be disenfranchised and having to deal in a very different world. Free electricity from your roof is great if you can afford to invest in the panels. Secondly, this is going to need a lot of land. There is no possibility of avoiding environmental destruction with large-scale solar arrays. This is Professor Marcia Langton, Foundation Chair of Australian Indigenous Studies at the University of Melbourne. The thing about all these plans is, using enormous amounts of land to create enough energy to export it to Asia is, well, it's not exactly new for us. We're back in the position where we were with mining back in the 70s, when it was, you know, the Australian industry was a cowboy outfit and the environmental damage that they caused back then is still with us. Building solar and wind farms of the size we're talking about will use enormous amounts of land, far more than we've given over to traditional mining. There is no possibility of any environmental protection or any cultural heritage protection with a project like that. Protecting the environment and our Indigenous heritage, that's the government's job. They need to pay attention to that. That was a problem with mining, and it's a problem with this too. The other thing is jobs. Mining doesn't create a lot of long-term, stable jobs. Neither does solar or wind. Not directly. The jobs are all in construction, though there will be a lot of those. It also doesn't add value to our resources. It just sends them away so someone else can add value to them. We used to use our resources to create jobs and value with a manufacturing industry. In the last 30 years, that has almost disappeared. But some people, like economist Roscano, think we can get it back. There is an opportunity for us to develop very strong manufacturers based on using our low-cost renewable energy. He's written a book called Superpower, Australia's Low Carbon Opportunity. He thinks free energy from the sun and wind could be the thing which finally allows us to build a strong, vibrant, lasting manufacturing sector. Australia becomes the logical place to turn Australian iron ore into iron metal, bauxite into uh, aluminium metal, uh, silicon into uh, silicon metal for use in computers and uh, and photovoltaic panels. Cheap energy is what we relied on in the 20th century to make things here in Australia, and it might work again. But this is also not something that will happen on its own. It's something we need to work at. And we can't just sit back and wait for this stuff to happen. We actually do need to put in the effort to make it happen. And according to Roscano, this will only work if Australia bucks the trend of the last 30 years. It will require a number of conditions to be met. First, the world will have to get to zero emissions. That's a great place for Australian industry and Australian prosperity, the Australian standard of living, but we've got to get there. And he thinks the nation's track record over the last 30 years has made that less likely. We've been a drag. We've reduced the chance of the world getting there. If we continue to do that, the world might not get there. And he thinks if the world gets there despite us, we'll be excluded from the new zero emissions economy. We've got to get on board and be seen 
uh, first of all by the Europeans and uh, Brits and Americans, but later by others as true players in the zero emissions economy or will be excluded, uh, will be pariahs. There's a serious risk of that. Basically, we need the world to want zero emissions stuff. Then we need them to want to buy that zero emissions stuff from us. That's not going to be easy. We know it won't because so far, nothing has been. I'm optimistic that we'll get to net zero. I'm resigned to the fact that over the rest of my lifetime, the globe is going to keep warming and climate change is going to keep happening. And that can be a little hard to cope with sometimes, but, you know, that's that's just going to be what the reality is. In terms of capitalising on the transition, I think... I think Australia can do it, but it's going to take a huge amount of effort. One of the reasons it's going to take a huge amount of effort is because of how much time we've wasted. Five decades since John Bokras's warnings, four since the CSIRO started sounding the alarm, three decades since it became a political issue. The consequences of this delay are serious. Not only do we have a shorter time to transition our economy, we also have a shorter time to save the planet. The Great Barrier Reef is at stake. Our bushland is at stake. Our homes are at stake if the bushfires and floods continue to get worse. Our way of life is at stake if the world can't handle the ramifications of a warming climate. Alison Reeve thinks in order to protect these things, we can't just cut emissions and plant trees. Either we're going to have to plant an enormous number of trees or we're going to have to do some sort of direct air capture of um, of carbon dioxide and, and store that. And that is just a, an unfortunate consequence of the amount of time that we've wasted. You know, if we had gone faster and harder on emissions reductions up until now, we wouldn't need to be in that position, but that is unfortunately where we are. Yeah. Yes, it is rather unfortunate. Sorry to be such a downer. So we might need to use some of the enormous amount of renewable energy we generate to literally suck carbon dioxide out of the air. I think it's still going to be hugely difficult. Former Liberal Environment Minister Robert Hill thinks the road ahead is rougher than it could have been. And even when I was a junior environment minister, I remember my officials saying to me, we need to invest in adaptation because a certain amount of change is inevitable. And I used to argue against it because I'd said, well, that's money we should be spending on mitigation. By that he means he wanted to spend money on stopping the warming of the planet rather than adapting to it as an inevitability. But I would now say, unfortunately, I think the world needs to spend quite a lot on adaptation because we are going to have to adapt to higher temperatures, but hopefully not as high as would otherwise have been the case. Dr Graham Pearman, the climate scientist we began this series with, is struggling to maintain his optimism. My confidence that we will actually do things in time is quite diminished. But almost everyone I spoke to said they thought Australia would eventually get there. We would make the changes that need to be made. Even Graham. That at the end of the day, my confidence is not actually in governments to do this, but rather that the private sector, not all of it, but a lot of it, will actually engage with this because they will see the real opportunities and they will be the ones that drive us forward. The battle against climate change is going to cause a massive upheaval of the old global economy and a transition into a new one. Australia has always had a role to play in that transition. 
over the last 30 years, we've played it poorly. Now, the lucky country, which has always been happy to watch as others dig up our luck and use it to create their own, has a chance to use as much of that luck as possible ourselves, then bottle whatever's left and sell it. We have missed out on opportunities like this in the past, and we can't afford to do that again. But for that to be realised, it will require leadership, vision and consistency over several decades and changes of government. Climate change has been looked on in this country as alternatively a lie, a pain in the ass, or a moral burden we must shoulder for the good of the environment. Hopefully, if we play it right, it's an opportunity. Perhaps it always was. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden, with research by Lexi Metherall. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Our podcast lead is Eric George, and our managing editor is Tanya Nolan. A big thanks to our test audience, as well as Yasmin Parry and the ABC Archives Department. This is the last episode of this season of Australia, if you're listening. Remember, you can find me on Twitter, at Matthew Bevan, And if you like this season, you can leave a rating and review on Apple or Spotify. We hope you've enjoyed the season. We hope to be back with more soon.